I absolutely love um, I absolutely love the pieces that we've had this morning. Um, incidentally, the one, Joe, that is my absolute favourite um, is that one, what a beautiful name, the name of Jesus. It's just won a Grammy Award. I think it's the first time ever that a Christian song has won it, written by Hill Songs, of course. And uh, if you're going, as I am, to the big church day out, how many of you are going to the big church day out next week? Just up the road. Hill Songs are there on the Friday night. So I'm really, really looking forward to that. Um, I'm told by my son, my musical advisor, that I won't like all the music there, but some of it I will. So it's, uh, if you could try and get this, it's only just up the road, I think it'll take you less than an hour to get there. Uh, it, it really will be, it's there on the Saturday, uh, on the Friday and the Saturday. So let's turn to this passage, shall we? Um, in Luke, uh, if we could have it on the screen, please. Thank you very much indeed. As you can see from that, the theme that I've been asked to address you on this morning is finding forgiveness on this passage in uh, Luke. Um, a very, very lovely passage. A sinful woman wetting the Saviour's feet with her tears, then wiping them with her hair and pouring perfume on, her, on his feet. Um, a very similar, though actually not the same incident, uh, happened in the home of another Simon. Not Simon the Pharisee, but Simon the leper. Um, and that happened in Bethany, which is in the south. The incident that we're looking at now happened in the north, in Galilee, um, but in that other incident, a woman identified by John's Gospel as Mary, you may remember this story, broke an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume and instead of um, pouring it on his feet, as in the incident we're looking at now, she actually poured it on his head. It was a sign of her devotion. And in this incident we're going to look at now from Luke chapter 7, uh, almost the same thing happened. But this time it's not in Bethany in the south, it's in Galilee, it's not in the home of Simon the leper, but it's in the home of Simon the Pharisee. So I want you to come with me now to that home. Uh, the first thing I noticed is that Jesus not only accepts the hospitality of those who are aware of their sin, but also he accepts the hospitality of a, a very, very religious Pharisee. Now, whether they realised it or not, the Pharisees needed forgiveness too. And religious people today, uh, who may go to church every Sunday, whether they realise it or not, they need forgiveness. So here was Jesus 
in the home of one of those very religious Pharisees. And it was Simon, uh, verse 36 tells us, who invited Jesus to have dinner with him. And when I read that, I thought, I wonder what kind of motive he had for inviting Jesus to dinner. I don't think it was because he thought, I'm a very good cook, or my servants are very good cooks, and I'd like Jesus to come. I think he had um, an ulterior motive for having Jesus there, trying as some of the Pharisees did to get Jesus into an argument about the law of Moses. It, if that was his motive, then I need to tell you it backfired. It backfired big time. Because he ended up finding out more about himself than he probably cared for. Some people today go to church with mixed motives. When I was a young person, prior to going into Bible college, and uh, I went into Bible college when I was 19, um, I have to tell you, um, in all honesty, putting my heart on my sleeve, that though my prime reason for going to church was to worship the Lord, um, being a, can you believe it, a red-headed, auburn-haired, um, uh, red-blooded male, uh, my motive for going to the church in Sheffield was to see some of the young ladies there. And uh, I had a few girlfriends in that church. Uh, that was my motive for going. I'll be quite honest about it. Um, other people have motives in various shapes and forms. For instance, uh, people in parts of America go to church because it's the done thing. And their Christianity, to be quite frank with you, having been there lots of times, is quite nominal. You go Sunday morning, you pay your tithes, and that's it for the rest of the week. You know, it's the done thing to do to go to church. That's their motive. And then, of course, there are people who go on Alpha courses, and uh, we're running an Alpha course at the moment, and there, there are record numbers there, and the motives of people there for being there is, is tremendous. Because they have genuine questions. They want to know about the meaning of life. And then still others go to church because they're lonely. Nothing wrong with that. They, they're sat at home all week on their own and uh, to get to church on Sunday and to enjoy the fellowship of God's people. Even though they may have lost their spouse, they may be living alone. They go to church and they're with their church family. And that's one of their motives for going to church. And then there are still others, and I hope uh, there's none like that's here this morning. Uh, they come to pick an argument with the preacher. So if you have an argument with me afterwards, and that's your motive, uh, I'm ready for you. <laughs> okay? <laughs> so though Simon obviously had got that mixed motives. Now, our motives may be mixed for being here this morning, and that is perfectly understandable. But the most important thing of all is that we hear Jesus speaking to us and we find forgiveness.
A Pharisee's chief concern was to keep the law of Moses, including, and this was important for them, its many, many traditions. And there were certainly lots of traditions with Pharisees, like deciding what to do with the erring hen that had the audacity to lay an egg on the Sabbath day. God help us. God help us. And uh, they sought to keep the law in exact detail. So, judged by that standard, you could say that they were model Jews. But that's not how Jesus saw them. In trying or keeping or trying to keep the law, they'd totally forgotten what God had said, and that's why your prayer was so important, Jan, about loving others. They kept themselves as far as possible from those they regarded as common people. Chris and I went out on Wednesday because we were guests in our home at the moment. We normally go out Friday, and we went Wednesday. We went to a place called Lyme in the northwest. And um, they, 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 the house was closed, but the downstairs of the house was open. And they, they took us underground down a long tunnel. And the lady said, uh, the reason they had this tunnel is that the gentry didn't like to see the servants. They were common people. They had to be hidden from sight. And the Pharisees were like that. They, they did not like most people. Certainly common people. To mix with them would contaminate them. So, to give you one example of how it affected their lifestyle, uh, they wouldn't eat with a non-Pharisee. You'll hardly believe this, but it's actually factual. They would never eat with a non-Pharisee in case the food that they had been offered in that meal had not been tithed on. In other words, had not been ten, ten parts of that food had not been given as an offering before it was cooked. So, in more detail, let's see now what we can learn from this passage. Now, I am certainly no photographer. Every single time I go on holiday, my wife says to me, have you got the camera? And I say, well, I've got one on my phone, which I hardly ever use. She says, no, haven't you got that fancy camera we bought? And reluctantly, I take that camera with me. But if I were a photographer, then I would take various angles of the scene or the person that I was trying to portray in order to get the best perspective of them. And this, in a sense, is what I want to do with this passage of Scripture right now. That there are three people in this story. And each of them is telling us something about God and the greatness of his salvation. And to get a clear focus of what's happening in, we need to zoom in on all three. There is a critical host, there is a repentant woman, and above all else, there's a forgiving saviour. So, let's take a look first at this first one. And something's gone wrong here. What's happened? I don't know what's happened here, but it's not working. 
Yeah. It just it does a, great. We're there. This is the first photograph we're going to take. A critical host. Apparently, it was customary in that day for outsiders uh, to hover around banquet halls so that they could um, watch important people and hear their conversation. When I heard that, I thought it's a bit like Leicester Square, isn't it? You know, people, when there's a, a world premiere, people go there to see the film stars. And they hope to, you know, they'll shake them by the hand or something. You know, maybe see on, be seen on the television. But since in those days everything was open, uh, they could easily, and without being detected, enter the banquet hall. They could speak to a guest. So that would explain, in my mind, how this sinful woman managed to get into Simon's house. She was certainly not invited Certainly not. Today we'd call her a gate crusher. And I think one look from Simon at this woman, can you, can you imagine? One look from Simon must have changed a hot summer into a howling winter. What's she doing here? But perhaps to avoid embarrassment, he allowed her to stay. Like all the Pharisees, Simon would have an intolerable contempt for anyone who wasn't of his own clique. And especially, I mean, especially a woman and someone like this woman. And Simon was absolutely embarrassed to the core. He was embarrassed for himself and embarrassed for his guests. To his mind, she should be thrown out. And to his mind, it confirmed what he thought about Jesus. He questioned his authority and he certainly, as far as he was concerned, couldn't have prophetic discernment. Because he was speaking, this, this so-called prophet Jesus was speaking to a woman and allowing her to anoint his feet. And that blew him away. But what is that saying about Simon? It was easy for him to say, she's a sinner. But far harder for him to say, I'm also a sinner. Like the Pharisees we read of in a later chapter, you'll find this in Luke 18, he was confident of his own righteousness. Proud of it. And I think that mirrors very, very accurately what many people today think. But how much sin, which is wrongdoing in our life, how much sin must a person commit to become a sinner? Am I a sinner because I commit adultery? Am I a sinner because I commit murder? No, the Bible teaches, whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking it all. So like we're in the cricket season, like a cricket ball might go one inch or two feet over the sixth boundary line, it still goes for six. If we stumble in one point, 
we're guilty of breaking it all. So on that basis, we're all guilty and we all need forgiveness. And the parable that Jesus told Simon emphasizes that so well. It's a lovely story in one way. Uh, There were two people who owed some money. One owed 500 denaria, which incidentally is where we get the, before, if you can remember it, before decimal currency, we had D for a penny. It's from the Roman coin, denaria. It's P, of course, now. This man owed 500 denaria. The other fella only owed 50 denaria. And Jesus said, neither of them, neither of them, the man who owed 500, the man who owed 50, neither of them had the money to pay the debt. So what happened? He cancelled the debts of them both. And the point Jesus was making here is this. That woman may have been a 500 pence sinner, but Simon the Pharisee was a 50 pence sinner. So both Both of them needed forgiveness. He was just as bankrupt as that woman. But he didn't realise it. I find that acknowledging our sin can be a very, very difficult step to take. Only by God's help can we do that. But it's the first rung on the ladder of becoming a Christian to acknowledge that there's something wrong in my life. I guess this morning that I am speaking to most of you who are Christians. I I can't make that assumption because you're in church, incidentally. So you know God's forgiveness. But let me tell you that religious pride can still affect us as Christians. We can be born again evangelical Pharisees where we see the faults in others, but we fail to see our own sin. Jesus put it in a humorous way, but making an important point. You see the speck in your brother or sister's eye, but you've got a great big plank in your eye. But pride, there's nothing worse than pride of that kind. Pride of that kind needs repentance. Because it can rear its ugly head at any time. So, would you not agree this morning? We're all in need of God's forgiveness. Every single one of us here this morning. So, having focused on Simon, let me get my camera out again. And uh, you perhaps do it from the, the, the back. This is the next picture we're going to take. Uh, the repentant woman. Now, young lady, are you looking for your mummy? Oh, you found her. Oh, you found her dad. Great. Nice to welcome you to church. Okay, so we're taking a second photograph now, and this is of a repentant woman. Evidently, she was well known in the district in which she lived. The reference to her being a sinner was a general statement. Chris and I watched a fascinating programme on the television about Cliff Richard. Did any of you see it? Went through all his songs. And one of his songs, something about honky-tonk or something, 
he decided not to sing any longer because he found out it was about a prostitute. And uh, this, this woman was a prostitute. She's, she, she's just called a sinner in the Bible, but she was actually a harlot. She was someone of notorious ill repute. Jewish rabbis didn't eat or speak with women and they certainly didn't talk to a prostitute. She was the lowest of the low. And here, here she was in Simon's house. Why was she there? What motivated her being there? Was it simply to get a free meal? I believe it was much more than that. And I love verse 37 of the passage we're looking at. It says, she had heard that Jesus was there. She had heard that Jesus was there. Oh, I love that. It could have been nothing more than curiosity that brought her there. She could have seen one of his miracles, but I suspect it was much more than that. She sensed a need in her life, and it's good when that happens to us. We can't, of course, come to Christ physically like that woman did, but by our presence in church and by our prayers, not fancy words, any word will do, we can say, Lord, I sense a need in my life. Can you meet it? And Jesus always will meet that need. There is further evidence, I think, of this woman's repentance in the action she took. Once she managed to get near the Lord, she wept probably tears of sorrow because she knew her life was a mess. She'd committed sex immorally many times. And then she anointed his feet. In those days, you know, anointing someone in this way was a common act of devotion, a, a respect for the person who was highly respected. And it seems likely that this woman had heard about Jesus and something responded in her heart and she became fully convinced not only of her need for forgiveness, but the fact that Jesus would forgive her. Do you know, just before this, if you look at it chronologically in the Bible, just before this particular incident, Jesus had said this, Come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. And I'd like to think the woman had heard Jesus say that. And she thought to herself, No matter what my past is, no matter how much I've messed up, that same invitation is for me. And Jesus can give me rest. Jesus can give me forgiveness. To wipe the Lord's feet with her hair, to pull them on her, was a step of faith. She had no idea at that point how Jesus would respond to that, but it would seem that she instinctively knew that he'd receive her. No doubt she'd heard what he'd said to others. No doubt she, she'd heard how he had healed and loved people, back to the theme of love again. And love is powerful. And she thought, he'll show me the same compassion. It's conceivable. I, I come here lots of times, but I don't know all of you. It's possible this morning you are saying, but I haven't got that sort of faith. My faith, Trevor, is very, very small. But let me tell you, when you come to Christ with the little faith you do have, under God, it has the capacity to grow. 
So from the critical host, from the repentant woman, the third, and this is the most, I'm going to put my big lens on this one. The most important thing is the next one. Can we just have it on the screen? The forgiving Saviour. Let me be clear about one thing. It's very important that you see this. It wasn't the tears of that woman that saved her. Nor was it her gift of perfume. These were simply expressions of her respect and love for Jesus. The basis on which she was forgiven that day and the only basis on which you and I can be forgiven is God's grace, his free, unmerited mercy. After I was a year in Scotland as an assistant minister, uh, my first real church was... As, as the sole pastor, was Weymouth in the south of England. And I was there for three and a half years. And uh, my wife, bless her, who I'd met in Scotland, used to come down on an overnight coach on Friday night to see me and then go back on an overnight coach to Edinburgh on the Sunday night and go to work Monday morning. There's love for you. But in Weymouth... Opposite the church, um, there was a, um, a builder. And I got very, very friendly with this builder. And he kept giving me gifts in kind. And they kept coming and coming and coming. And I was very appreciative of these gifts in kind. And in fact, his mother, uh, or a lady living next to the builders, she took pity on me because I wasn't married at that time. And she used to give me a cooked meal every day. And she used to, I, I don't know whether she thought I needed it, she used to give me passion fruit. <laughs> and this man kept loading gifts in kind on me. And then I suddenly realised why he was giving me these gifts. Because he thought it would buy his way into heaven. Let me tell you, and I stopped accepting his gifts, and I did it, I hope, in a diplomatic way. Let me tell you, no amount of giving or good works can pay for salvation. It is by grace we are saved through faith, and that's not from ourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. So any attempt on our part, we wouldn't, of course, today anoint a person's feet with our tears and perfume, but any attempt on our part to show that we love God won't save us. It is the response of faith to God's grace, his free, unmerited mercy, that is his vital thing. Someone, I love this, I read this the other day, I think it's lovely, put so simply. Someone has described God's grace as us giving nothing, us deserving nothing, but us receiving everything. Hallelujah. Lacking the assurance of salvation, and I sense in my spirit now that I need to say this, could be a problem to someone in the congregation this morning. Let me tell you, for five years it was a problem for me. I, I gave my life to the Lord in a Billy Graham relay meeting 
But for five years after that, I would sit in the congregation and whenever I heard the gospel preached, I'd feel guilty. Am I or am I not saved? And foolishly, I thought I needed to get saved again. How did that woman know her sins were forgiven? It was because Jesus said directly to her, it's in verse 48, your sins are forgiven. Let me tell you, God's word can give to you this morning that same assurance. But if you look for it in the wrong place, you'll fail to have that insurance. Please note, it's not based on how you feel. It's not based on the times you try to prove to God that you're faithful to him. The sequence of your faith might vary, but the source of it remains the same. If God tells you in his word that you are forgiven, like Jesus told that woman she was forgiven, that's all the assurance you need. A verse in 1 John says, He who has the Son has life, and I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you what? May think, hope, no, that you might know, know you have eternal life. That is God burning his truth into our hearts. May God grant to us this assurance. The Holy Spirit witnessing with our spirit, even when we mess up, even when we fail, that we are a child of God and our sins are forgiven. And if that's a problem to you, well, would you please speak to me after the service? If you doubt your salvation, let me help you through that difficulty. As Christians, we should never, ever lose the thrill of God's forgiveness. When we had that piece this morning, where, where is... Joey's at the back. When we had that piece this morning, what a beautiful name, the name of Jesus. You know, my heart welled within me at the thought that I'm forgiven. I hope you felt the same. God's forgiven you. <coughs> Listen to these verses. Psalm 103. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed your transgressions from you. When we forget people, we tend to remember things but not so with God. Listen to what Isaiah says. I'll quote a number of verses. His sins are cast behind his back. The record is erased, says another verse. It is completely forgotten. Where do you, where do you find human forgiveness like that? Yet Simon, with all his religious observance as a Pharisee, missed out on that. But this woman, with all her sins, received that forgiveness. In fact, Simon even doubted that Jesus was a prophet because it didn't fit his concept. He said, if this man were a prophet, he would know who was touching him. What kind of woman she is, that she's a sinner. But it was precisely because that woman was a sinner 
that he reached out to her. And thank God he does the same for you and me. There wasn't anything about that woman that Jesus didn't know. He knew every immoral act she'd done. We sometimes make the mistake of thinking that we can hide things from God. How foolish we are. God knows all about our past. He knows every time we mess up. The Word of God is living and active. It judges our thoughts and our attitudes. Nothing, says the Bible, in all creation is hidden from Him. So God knows the worst that there is to know about you and me. But let me finish on something very, very lovely. Once that woman had been forgiven, she entered into a completely new life. Jesus said to her, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. And she became a new person with a changed life. Before she'd been immoral, before she'd been a prostitute, but now in the strength that Jesus gave her, she would be made new. Luke 7 says that's what happened. Coming back from the northwest the other day, I said to Chris, let's, let's go a different way back. And I drove through Poynton in Cheshire. And I said to Chris, I was born here. This is my birthplace. I said, isn't it a posh place? <laughs> now, I was brought up in Sheffield, but let me explain, I was born in the war, and the city was being bombed badly, so my mother went to an aunt who lived in Poynton. And as far as I know, I have never been back to Poynton since. And I thought, what a lovely place. Trevor Partington was born here. And then I thought, twelve and a half years after that, I had another birth. I was born again. My life changed. The Bible says this, and it was true for that woman and it can be true for you. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new crea creation. He's not the same anymore. The old has gone, the new has come. And all this is from God, who has reconciled him to, uh, him to himself. I think we sometimes make the mistake of thinking that the change takes place all at once. You know, you go to bed a sinner, you get converted, and the next minute you wake up a saint. Doesn't happen like that, does it? God is changing us all the time. But positionally, all of us are new people in Jesus, as that woman was a new person. In our relationship with God, we are a new person. But the progress of our Christian life, well, all the time, God has to knock corners off us and change us and reveal things in our life that we need to put right. And for 60 years, God's been doing... Well, you can work out my age now, can't you? Well, it's more than 60 years. I'm, I'm being economical with the truth. God has been changing me. And he's still changing me. Still changing saintly Simon here. All of us need changing. That woman had a change. We can have a change. Simon the Pharisee was blind to the woman and blind to himself. He saw her past, but Jesus saw her future. Let me say that again. He saw her past, but Jesus saw her future.
And this lovely incident is encouraging us all to believe that the Lord can take anyone and make them a child of God. Let's confidently believe that for those we're praying for. This doesn't mean that God's forgiveness is automatic. People can reject his grace as well as receiving it. History recalls the story of a man who refused forgiveness. He'd been arrested for mail theft. The penalty for it was hanging. But the American president of the time, Andrew Jackson, offered that man a pardon. But believe it or not, the man refused to accept his pardon. And the attorney of law didn't know what to do about this, so he went to the chief justice and he said, this man refuses to accept his pardon. And this is what the chief justice said, a pardon is a slip of paper, the value of which is determined by the acceptance of the person to be pardoned. If it is refused, it is no pardon. George Wilson must be hanged. And he was. Thanking God for our salvation, let's pray earnestly for those who aren't Christians, that they will accept his pardon. There will be those who criticise as Simon did, but others like that sinful, repentant woman who will receive the Saviour. May may that be the choice of every one of us. The Bible says this, at this moment, God is ready to welcome you. Today, he's ready to save you. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you that in many of our lives, when you offered us pardon, we received it. Not because we tried hard, not because we'd served a probationary period, but simply because you loved us. Now, Lord, we're praying for our loved ones. We're praying for our neighbours. We're praying for those we meet on the streets. We're praying for those whose lives might be totally messed up. Help us to believe with all our hearts that God can change them. That God can give them a new start. We might see their past, but thank you that you see their future. And help us to believe with all our hearts that the gospel is the power of God for salvation for everyone that believes. In Jesus' name, Amen.